0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Introducing Novel Agents into the Armamentarium for Triple Negative Breast Cancer is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, in partnership with Smart Patients and is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome back for another great session here in the PC Oncology Winter Conference. I'm Taryn Sims, and I'm happy to introduce our last session, which is introducing novel agents into the Armentarium for triple negative breast cancer. And our expert speaker today is Dr. Laura Spring, who's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an oncologist at Mass General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And welcome, Dr. Spring. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. I'll just remind the audience, here's Dr. Spring's disclosures, and here are our learning objectives for today. Differentiate among appropriate treatments for patients with TNBC based on current guidelines and clinical trial evidence. Use individualized management strategies for AEs experienced by patients on therapy for TNBC; and integrate patient education and feedback to optimize patient experiences during treatment and survivorship. Let's turn it over now to Dr. Spring to talk about the overview in epidemiology. Dr. Spring, welcome. Thank you. So, to start, we'll
1: review the landscape of triple negative breast cancer. So, it represents about 10 to 15% of breast cancer overall, it is generally associated with poorer outcomes compared to the other subtypes. So, generally, you can see a more aggressive clinical course, both in the early and metastatic settings, um, tends to be a high grade tumor, typically grade three. It is more responsive to chemotherapy, though, because it is high grade. And also we see earlier and more frequent uh, distant recurrence. And on the right here, you see the five year relative, uh, relative survival by subtype. And of course, data like this is always a little um, out of date because uh, fortunately there's consistently new treatment options. But as you see, the triple negative breast cancer group is in the yellow, which um, does have the poorest survival. In terms of epidemiology, uh, this subtype is more prevalent in Black women than others. It does contribute to excess breast cancer-related mortality among Black women, but it's not the sole explanation for that. Black women are also more likely than others to carry a TP53 mutation and tend to have breast cancers with higher KI67 index as well. Also, the incidence of pathogenic germline BRCA mutations um, is about 16% in TNBC, with the vast majority being BRCA1. And there's also a disproportionate effect on younger women, premenopausal women, and women with BRCA mutations. So as we reviewed before, um, a decent percentage um, can have a germline BRCA mutation with more being BRCA1. And TNBC is present um, in about seventy percent of premenopausal uh, BRCA positive women with breast cancer. And here on the right is um, some data on the prevalence of TNBC among different groups. Now, talk a bit about the patterns of distant recurrence that we see with this disease. So, in some reports, distant recurrence can occur um, in thirty four percent of the time versus twenty one percent of patients diagnosed with non-TNBC. More likely to have visceral metastases, so metastases to the lung and brain, liver, um, compared to other subtypes. And we also see a shorter mean time to recurrence compared to non-TNBC. Local recurrence 2.8 versus 4.2 years to distant recurrence 2.6 versus 5 years. And you can see that here on the right with TNBC represented in the blue, and you see essentially almost all recurrences are happening in those first five years. Compared to non-triple negative breast cancer, or particularly hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, where we describe a low but persistent recurrence risk. In terms of some risk factors, um, many of these also relate to risk factors for breast cancer in general, but some are a period at an early age, so under 12 years old, and/or a later menopause, uh, Black and Hispanic ancestry. A BRCA1 mutation, as we reviewed, and family history is also um, a factor. In terms of fa- risk factors that are modifiable, obesity and premenopausal women, moderate or high alcohol consumption, low physical activity, um, exogenous hormone use, and young age at first pregnancy. So just to review some important facts about TNBC for this section. So TNBC is a breast cancer subtype that accounts for about 10 to 15% of breast cancer overall, generally is associated with poorer outcomes versus other breast cancer subtypes. It's more prevalent in Black women. It is more likely to metastasize to visceral organs in the brain than other breast cancers. And the modifiable risk factors for TNBC include obesity, alcohol consumption, physical activity, hormone use, and age at first pregnancy in an action item be aware of the modifiable risk factors and know that maintenance of a healthy lifestyle may reduce the risk of developing TNBC so next we'll move on to the biomarker and molecular genetic test section so first in this section we'll discuss the subtypes of TNBC so like all cancers and Breast cancer as well. Um, TMBC is a heterogeneous disease. There is distinct genomic subtypes. And in general, we think of it as overlapping, but it's not perfectly synonymous with uh, what we describe as basal-like breast cancer. And these molecular subtypes are based on gene expression. And about 75% of TMBCs um, are categorized as highly proliferative basal-like subtype. And the basal TMBC subtypes are more likely to be seen in younger women as well. About 20% of TMBCs are highly enriched in tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TILs and immune checkpoints such as CTLA4, PD1, and PDL1. Um, and this group actually has um, a better prognosis. In terms of the impact um, of the subtypes on overall survival, this is a summary here. There's several different classification uh, systems that have been explored, but this is um, a common one here, which is basal-like one, basal-like two, luminal androgen receptor (LAR) and mesenchymal, and these have different overall survivals that have been observed. um, With the worst prognosis being basal-like two. And I'll just say clinically, we aren't testing for those subtypes, um, but we do do think we can get a sense of them sometimes just looking at some of the pathologic features on the report. So if it's a high-grade tumor or not, um, you can get a sense of which subtype it might be. So a bit more about the recommended biomarker and molecular testing. So, of course, any patient with breast cancer, we need to know ERPR and HER2. Uh, her 2 also if the ihc is equivocal if it comes as 2 plus then we do a uh, confirmatory dual probe ish assays or or fish to determine if it's considered her 2 amplified or not so at recurrence uh, for TNBC, it is important to check pdl one expression using IHC to determine the CPS or the combined positive score with a score of 10 or more considered positive, as we'll see in a bit that does impact how first-line treatments approached. It's also important for anyone with advanced disease to um, have genetic testing, particularly for BRCA1 and 2 performed if that had not previously been done. And that would be germline or hereditary testing. At the same time, sequencing on the tumor or in the blood can be done to assess for actionable somatic mutations that are directly cancer-related or part of the cancer itself. So the ones here, um, so enteric fusion, RET fusion, These are on here because we now have disease agnostic approvals for certain agents. So there are now approved NTREC inhibitors. There's an approved RET inhibitor. And the qualification is advanced disease with one of these fusions. And these are quite rare, but they are actionable. Uh, There are also disease agnostic approvals for immunotherapy with um, MSI high status or a high tumor mutational burden. And so who should be tested for BRCA1 and 2? Um, in the advanced breast cancer setting, it's easy. Everyone who hasn't had recent genetic testing should have it. In the localized breast cancer setting, there are some more nuanced guidelines that are summarized here. But I'll say in general, the field is moving towards testing more and more, um, particularly for triple negative breast cancer. We're testing almost everyone now. Um, other kind of must-test situations would be lobular breast cancer um, with a personal family history of gastric cancer as well, uh, any male breast cancer, and then other factors would be age 45 or younger. And then it gets a little more complex after that, as um, with other ages, it depends much more on the family history or history of other cancers. So to summarize, um, molecular testing, biomarker testing, in triple negative breast cancer is important. It's a heterogeneous disease. There are distinct genomic subtypes. Accurate hormone receptor and HER2 assessment are crucial to avoid risk of false negatives and missed opportunities for effective endocrine or HER2-directed treatments. So with a recurrence, we always, if possible, want to biopsy and confirm receptors again. pdl one testing is needed at diagnosis of triple negative metastatic breast cancer to determine eligibility for immunotherapy. And all patients with MBC should receive genetic testing if not previously performed. And that's because, again, that is actionable um, due to approval of PARP inhibitors, which we'll review later on. And an action item, ensure appropriate biomarker molecular assessment at diagnosis and at time of recurrence or metastasis to guide optimal treatment decisions. So next, we'll move on to discussion of the treatment of early-stage triple-negative breast cancer. So a key study in the last couple of years uh, is the Keynote 5.2.2 trial. And this is the trial that explored immunotherapy with pembrolizumab in the early breast cancer setting. I think it's important to take a moment to review a summary of the eligibility criteria for this trial because that helps inform us in clinic who should get pembrolizumab or not. This trial included patients 18 or older with newly diagnosed T1C and 1 to 2 or T2 to 4 and 0 to 2 triple negative breast cancer. So one way to think about that is with any lymph node involvement, we would think of a patient as being eligible for pembrolizumab. Without clinical lymph node involvement, uh, it's reserved for patients with a tumor T2 or greater. And tissue was looked at for pdl one but it was not part of being eligible or not. So unlike metastatic triple negative breast cancer, pdl one testing is not required for early breast cancer. This study was comparing immunotherapy with chemotherapy. So it was carboplatin and paclitaxel, um, followed by adriamycin and cytoxin, and the pembrolizumab carried on throughout. And then after surgery, pembrolizumab was continued for an additional nine cycles, and that was regardless of response at the time of surgery. And the primary endpoint was both pathologic complete response and event-free survival. So the dual primary endpoint. This required a larger study, but in with past studies looking at pathologic complete response as the primary outcome, the question was always, well, does that translate to improvement in event-free survival? So with this study design, they had a dual primary endpoint. So they were able to report on those um, closer together than we typically see, and the study was powered for event-free survival as well. As we reviewed, Pembro was for a full year because it was in both the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant study. Um, and so with the addition of Pembrolizumab, significantly more patients achieved um, a pathological response, and that was independent of nodal status. There was also significant reduction in progression, recurrence, or a second primary tumor. So here is a summary of the PCR data for Pembrolizumab versus placebo. And in all patients, the improvement in PATH CR was 13.6%. And then, as we always see, PDL1 positive tumors do have a higher PCR rate than those that are not PDL1 positive. But as you see here with pembrolizumab, PCR rates were higher in both the PDL1 positive and PDL1 negative groups. And the delta it was actually larger in the PDL1 negative group at 18.3% versus 14.3%. So that's a key point of why we don't have to test for PDL1 in the early breast cancer setting, because this approval is not based on PDL1. And as many know, there are different ways to give pembrolizumab. So in the study, it was given at 200 milligrams every three weeks, but it can also be given at 400 milligrams every six weeks. And here uh, are the event-free survival data. So there was a significant improvement in EFS independent of pdl one expression. So the estimated 36-month overall survival was 89.7% versus 86.9%, and that data is still immature. But you see overall, um, this blue line is the pembrolizumab group, significant improvement in EFS with a hazard ratio of 0.63. The trial did not um, include other adjuvant treatments like capecitabine or olaparib. But in practice, that combination is often being done for patients with residual disease. And so speaking of olaparib, here's the Olympia study. This was the study that explored adjuvant olaparib uh, for patients with triple negative breast cancer with a BRCA mutation. So these um, patients eligible for this study um, had already completed their chemotherapy, had to have at least six cycles or more and had to be considered a high risk of recurrence. And there's a variety of criteria uh, whereby patients could meet eligibility for the study. And patients were randomized to olaparib, 300 milligrams twice a day for one year versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. And here on the right, the primary endpoint is Shown here with a significant improvement, uh, 85.9% versus 77.1% with Olaparib versus placebo. And so to summarize this section in the keynote 522 trial, the addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy significantly improve event-free survival and pathologic complete response rate regardless of PD-L1 status and high-risk early triple-negative breast cancer. Pembrolizumab reduced progression, recurrence, and second primary tumors and improved event-free survival and PCR rates. In the Olympia trial, adjuvenolaparib improves invasive disease-free survival, distant event-free survival, and three-year overall survival compared with placebo for patients with BRCA1 or 2 mutated HER2 negative high-risk breast cancer. And so an action item is to remember that adjuvant pembrolizumab can be given concurrently with olaparib for patients with high-risk early TMBC with a BRCA mutation with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy, because that's a situation that's come up a bit in that prior to the approval of pembrolizumab, we had options to do capecitabine for six months for residual disease, or more recently, if a patient has a BRCA mutation to do olaparib for the year. So there was some um, uncertainty early on about combining these therapies, but there are safety data from the advanced setting. So a lot of practices have started to do that. Right. So next we'll look at novel and emerging strategies for advanced triple negative breast cancer.
0: So here's another case, Emily. She's a 50-year-old black woman presenting with concerns about self-detected lump in her left breast. Her BMI is 25. She's a non-smoker, moderate alcohol use. Three children, the first was born when she was 20 years old. She's a large tumor on physical exam with an axillary node involvement. She's diagnosed with stage 3 TNBC and treated with adjuvant chemotherapy. Two years later, follow-up imaging shows uptake in the right breast and metastatic lesions in the lung. Two, each are less than five millimeters, and in the liver, one that's less than three centimeters. Her family history is negative for breast or other cancers on her mother's side. Her father had low risk prostate cancer diagnosed at age 70. Her test results show PDL1 CPS greater than 10 and BRCA1 2 negative. She receives pembrolizumab and chemotherapy and achieves a clinical response to therapy. Treatment is well tolerated. At a follow-up visit, 11 months after starting pembrolizumab and chemotherapy, scans showed disease progression in Emily's lung tumors.
1: Here is a summary of the current recommended approach for metastatic triple-negative breast cancer. As we reviewed in the first line, the key is what is the PD-L1 status? Is the combined positive score greater than 10 percent or not? If it is. And a patient's eligible for pembrolizumab combined with chemotherapy. If not, we tend to continue to treat with chemotherapy, uh, often single agent. Sometimes we will use combination therapy if very symptomatic or immediately life-threatening disease. And sometimes we'll start with that combination and then um, remove one of the agents and continue with single agent. When there's progressive disease, uh, the BRCA status is, again, important because if there's a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, again, more likely to be BRCA1, a patient is eligible for a PARP inhibitor. And technically, PARP inhibitors can be used first line also, but um, now with immunotherapy, a lot of patients are receiving that in the first line if eligible. And then from there, if there's no BRCA mutation, other considerations are what is the HER2 low status? So that is an entity that's now very important to understand. We used to think of HER2 as positive or negative, but there's been recent work, and we'll review it, looking at HER2 low. And there's an approval for trastuzumab, deruxtecan now in that setting. So very important to know the HER2 status fully. And then another option would be the antibody drug conjugate, sacituzumab govitecan. And of course, there's other chemotherapy options too. So we'll review some of the data behind this flowchart. So here's the final analysis of Keynote 355. So this is the pivotal study that led to the approval of pembrolizumab for metastatic TMBC with a combined positive score, 10 or greater, so positive pdl one And in the final analysis, the improvement in overall survival, the median overall survival was 23 months in the group with pembrolizumab versus 16.1 months with chemotherapy alone. So that was quite significant. Median progression-free survival was also improved 9.7 months versus 5.6. And the response rate was also higher in the group with immunotherapy. In terms of chemotherapy backbone, so there were different options in this study, and those included um, nabpaclitaxel, paclitaxel, or gemcitabine with carboplatin. And there's some suggestion that perhaps uh, those with receiving a taxane did better um, than those on gem carbo. And there was a lot of interest early on in nabpaclitaxel because it doesn't require steroids. But with time, I think there's been more comfort with using steroids with pembrolizumab. And so sasetuzumab gobi-tecan is a really exciting agent, antibody drug conjugate. It includes a payload. The active payload is SN38, which is part of irenatecan, which is a topoisomerous inhibitor. And this is linked. To an antibody, um, and the antibody for this agent it targets trope two, which is an antigen expressed in many epithelial cancers, including about eighty-eight percent of triple-negative breast cancer. And really, regardless of trope two status, we still see um, efficacy with this drug. Which again is why trope two status is not needed to give this drug. And importantly, this agent does have a bystander effect. So in acidic tumor microenvironment, the SN38 is released from the anti trope 2 antibody and therefore it can diffuse into neighboring trope 2 negative cells. And that's in part why the degree of trope 2 positivity is not something that we look at to decide if someone could have this agent. And so the ASCENT trial was the confirmatory phase 3 Um, study of this drug. It had already received um, initial improvement based on a single arm study, but this was the randomized confirmatory study. And so it was for patients with metastatic TMBC with two or more prior treatments. And here we're looking at the outcomes in patients without brain metastases, as well as in the full population. So as you see in both groups, um, the the group that received sasituzumab did much better than chemotherapy alone. So Median progression-free survival was 5.6 months versus 1.7, and then in the fall population, 4.8 months versus 1.7. And even though this was for patients with two lines or more, there was some variability there in how many lines of treatment a patient um, had, so some heterogeneity in these results. The response rate was also significantly higher uh, in those patients who received sasituzumab compared to chemotherapy, so in the overall population, uh, 31% versus 4%. And here are some results, again, looking at um, progression-free survival among patients without brain metastases. Again, the sasituzumab group did much better. And looking at overall survival among patients without brain metastases. And the sasituzumab group did much better, 12.1 months versus 6.7 months. And here um, is the overall survival Data um, specifically for patients uh, with one prior line of treatment in the metastatic setting and progression 12 months or more after they receive therapy in the localized breast cancer setting. And here's your overall survival, um, again, improvement with Sassatuzamab. In terms of the FDA approval for this agent, so it's FDA approved for patients with unresectable, locally advanced, or metastatic TMBC who have received two or more prior systemic therapies, at least one of them for metastatic disease. And so that's important. There's some confusion about what line this agent's approved for, but it's important to note if they have already received a line of therapy for localized breast cancer, that that could count towards the two lines. And as we reviewed, assessment of trope 2 expression is not necessary prior to treatment with this agent. Now moving on to talking a bit about HER2-Low and the approval of trastuzumab deruxtecan. So this was the Destiny Breast 04 study that looked at trastuzumab deruxtecan versus chemotherapy for HER2 low MBC. So to review how this is defined, so HER2 low is currently defined as IHC1 plus or IHC2 plus FISH negative. So essentially everyone who isn't HER2 positive and whose tumor isn't HER2 IHC0. And this could be based on... The tumor from the early breast cancer setting or from the recurrence, and it's important. There's some centers that only have had sent fish before. So as we're thinking about this agent, it's important to look at the past result and understand was HER2 assessed with IHC or not? Because if not, it's hard to um, determine if a patient does have HER2 low breast cancer or not. So that's just a um, couple thoughts on why that's so important. But essentially, in this study, all patients had had at least one um, line of prior chemotherapy, so overall one to two lines of prior chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. Also, if the patient was hormone receptor positive, because we see her too low with both uh, HR positive or with triple negative breast cancer, they had to have one or more lines of endocrine therapy stable brain metastases were allowed. And patients were randomized two to one to receive trastuzumab droxacin at standard dosing of 5.4 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks versus chemotherapy. And the primary endpoint was progression for survival, um, specifically in the hormone receptor positive population. But a key secondary endpoint was PFS overall, including the HER2 low TNBC patients. So here is the analysis looking at the hormone receptor negative HER2 low patients, as that's relevant to our discussion today. So looking at PFS on the left, you see a significant improvement uh, with trastuzumab deruxtecan, 8.5 months versus 2.9, the blue line being trastuzumab deruxtecan. Often early on in studies, we may not see yet an overall survival benefit as the data is not mature yet. But here, even in an earlier assessment, we already seen overall survival benefits. So with TDXD, 18.2 months versus 8.3 months with chemotherapy, again, um, significant improvement. We're looking at the response rate um, with this agent, which again was um, much higher with TDXD compared to chemotherapy. The approval is uh, by the FDA for patients with unresectable or metastatic HER2 low breast cancer who have received a prior chemotherapy in the metastatic setting or develop disease recurrence six months or less after completing adjuvant chemotherapy. So essentially, we're thinking about this agent for patients with HER2 low breast cancer who have already had one line of chemotherapy in the either advanced breast cancer setting, or if the recurrence happened um, quite soon after treatment for localized disease, and that can count as the one line of chemotherapy. And so moving on to PARP inhibitors. So PARP um, is an enzyme that helps maintain DNA integrity during DNA replication. So when cells lack BRCA1 or 2, which are proteins involved in homologous directed repair of DNA, uh, PARP inhibitors disrupt DNA damage repair mechanisms in the tumor cells, so kind of like a second hit. And it may lead to cell death and potentially reduction or stoppage of tumor growth. And therefore, it was thought that these agents um, could be helpful in patients with uh, BRCA mutations. The trial here, Olympiad, looked at olaparib versus chemotherapy in patients with BRCA mutations and metastatic breast cancer. And so there was significant improvement in progression-free survival with olaparib versus chemotherapy. And at this time, there has not been um, a difference in overall survival. But this. Agent is approved as well as talazoparib. So, there's a trial looking at the PARP inhibitor talazoparib called embraca, and that also compared the PARP inhibitor to chemotherapy. And again, with the PARP inhibitor, there was significant improvement in progression-free survival, but at this time point, no difference yet in overall survival. And specifically in TNBC in this study, um, there was again a significant improvement in progression-free survival and the clinical benefit rate. No overall survival benefit has been seen at the time of the final analysis, but importantly, improved quality of life was seen with the PARP inhibitor versus chemotherapy. And so to summarize optimal treatment of metastatic TMBC. So first line treatment of metastatic TMBC is determined by the PDL1 status. Cestatuzumab gobitican is the first antibody drug conjugate that targets trope 2 to deliver potent cytotoxic topoisomerase 1 inhibitor um, in it to receive approval in locally advanced or metastatic TMBC after two or more prior systemic therapies, with one or more being for metastatic disease. Trastuzumab duroxican, another antibody drug conjugate, is an option for unresectable or metastatic HER2 low breast cancer after a prior chemotherapy for metastatic disease or after recurrence six months or less of completing adjuvant chemotherapy. In olaparib and talazoparib are options for patients with BRCA1 or 2 mutations in metastatic TNBC. So an action item, performing germline testing, especially for BRCA1 and 2, and obtaining HER2 and PDL1 IHC in all patients with metastatic TNBC is crucial to making the optimal treatment decision. So next, we'll talk about immunotherapy-related adverse events. So there's, as I think this group well knows, a broad spectrum of immune-related adverse events that can be seen essentially um, could impact any organ, with some being more likely to be impacted than others. So, And at this point, there's no current way to predict who will develop these uh, versus not. Uh, Onset is typically two to three months after starting therapy, but can occur for up to two years after therapy completion. So it's very important to ask patients to contact their oncology team if any symptoms develop, if they're admitted to the hospital, or if they begin any new medications, um, just to make sure there's not um, impact on the immunotherapy. So in specific symptoms and signs, we're looking for severe fatigue, headache, cough, dyspnea, diarrhea, skin rash, chest pain, bloating, weight loss, severe muscle weakness or pain, bowel vision or mood changes. So in general, we have to just have a very high suspicion for immune-related adverse events. And it's hard because a lot of these can be um, signs and symptoms that we see with chemotherapy, but um, we just have to have a broader differential on our mind with immunotherapy. If an immune-related adverse event is suspected, um, we conduct a complete workup, including lab tests to rule out other causes. One of the most common um, IRAs we see is hypothyroidism, and that's more common in females than males. So here's a summary of some of the adverse events with PEMBRO and chemotherapy seen in the Keynote 522 and Keynote 355 studies. So overall, hypothyroidism was the most common, followed by a severe skin reaction, hyperthyroidism, and then much more rare adrenal insufficiency, pneumonitis, thyroiditis, hypophysitis, or colitis. Fortunately, majority were hypothyroidism, which is um, one we can usually treat through by um, replacing thyroid hormone. Here are some recommended assessments and education prior to starting immunotherapy. In terms of history, it's important to understand if they have a history of an autoimmune disorder, uh, which can put them at higher risk for developing an immunotherapy adverse event. Also important to understand any infectious diseases. If someone does have a severe immunotherapy toxicity and needs significant immunosuppression to treat that, um, that can allow some infectious diseases to flare. Also important to assess for neurologic conditions, endocrine disease, bowel function, and any pre-existing comorbidities that could make um, immunotherapy challenging. So for patient education, um, dedicated education uh, specifically on the signs and symptoms of these adverse events by medical professionals is important, including informational booklets, reference cards, also counseling on steroid related toxicities if indicated, and encouragement to use contraception if applicable and discussion about fertility is important with immunotherapy as it is with chemotherapy. Lab tests that are often checked before would be routine labs with a CBC with differential, CMP, A1C, serum cortisol, thyroid studies, um, if indicated cardiac tests such as EKG and troponin, and um, if applicable assessment for latent infections. And that's, again, in case significant immunosuppression is needed, there's certain infections like hepatitis B or tuberculosis that could act up. In terms of on- and post-treatment Monitoring. So before infusions, CBC and CMP uh, are assessed at regular intervals. We look at thyroid function and especially if symptomatic, we would assess cortisol and ACTH. Physical exam uh, includes a pretty general exam, um, including of the skin and to assess for unexplained shifts in weight, which um, could um, reflect issues. Lab tests again that we're looking at pretty regularly are the complete blood count, CMP, and thyroid function. And here uh, is a guide to managing immune-related primary uh, hypothyroidism. So not something we have to memorize, but essentially gives guidance for where the TSH level is and um, how to approach that. And essentially, usually for early grade, it's something we can treat through. Well, if someone has uh, severe symptoms, then obviously the um, pembrolizumab would be held and we'd be involving endocrine for sure. And so this is some guidance on steroid dosing with the message being to maintain a low threshold for using systemic steroids, uh, especially once you hit grade two or more um, with immunotherapy toxicities. And there's general dosing guidelines and uh, many institutions institutions would be involving different specialists depending on uh, the adverse events. So if it was GI related or cardiac or derm, um, it's helpful to involve specialists in those areas. And as we mentioned a bit before, it can be challenging to differentiate what are the toxicities from the immunotherapy uh, versus from the chemotherapy, especially in breast cancer, where we're giving these agents together. So as a reminder, the onset is typically two to three months after starting therapy, but it can occur for up to two years after treatment completion with inflammatory autoimmune type symptoms and thyroid symptoms um, more common with pembrolizumab. It's important for us to maintain high level of suspicion for these adverse events um, and to assess any changes. And then also important to provide patients with and instruct them to carry and share with their healthcare providers, a wallet card or other information to detail they are on immunotherapy and what potential side effects could look like, as well as contact information for the oncology team. Mm-hmm. And so an action item is to monitor patients regularly for these adverse events and to educate them to immediately report any concerning signs or symptoms to you. Next, we'll discuss antibody related adverse events.
0: This is Emily, our case again. So Emily receives sasituzumab and can without any need to test for trope 2 expression, and she's been doing very well on treatment. However, she presents for cycle 6 day 8 treatment, and her ANC is 850, or grade 3. She's been afebrile, and she feels well.
1: So here's a summary of the treatment-related adverse events with sasituzumab, govitecan. So... Ones of particular interest um, are neutropenia and diarrhea, as that's known to be expected with uh, the sm 38 payload part of rna can. So neutropenia, um, as we heard in the case study, um, can lead to the need for growth factor support, um, sometimes dose reductions. But overall, the most common ones we see are grade 1 or 2 nausea, diarrhea, alopecia, and fatigue. So in terms of holding. We withhold its SG for an ANC of less than 1500 on day one of any cycle or ANC less than 1000 on day eight. And here again, not to memorize, but as a a summary um, of the common potential severe toxicities associated with this agent and some of the management strategies for it. So neutropenia um, you know, there's clear guidelines for, you know, based on the ANC, when to hold the agent as we reviewed, and you can use GCSF and dose reductions, particularly for grade four neutropenia or prolonged grade three or really any febrile neutropenia. And then, in terms of diarrhea, there is potential, as with ornidazine, for severe diarrhea. So, prophylaxis is not recommended unless there's a particular history or concern. Um, but important to educate pes- uh, patients about early use of loperamide at the you know first onset. Um, you know, in infusion, if there was early you know significant diarrhea, atropine can be used. And then for late diarrhea, of course, always also important to think about any potential infectious etiologies or other reasons for diarrhea. And like any treatment-related diarrhea, we're managing this um, as needed with fluids, electrolyte substitutions, dose reductions, and and general holding for grade 3 or greater diarrhea. For nausea, vomiting... Um, This is, you know, decently high risk of that. So important to to pre-medicate with a two to three drug regimen. The onset could be delayed. Uh, The median was eight days in the study. So it's not always kind of right after treatment. So important for patients to have anti at home as well. Hypersensitivity can be seen. Uh, Again, there's pre-medication with the agent. So in terms of counseling patients, I think important to discuss that this agent, you know, does often cause hair loss. I think scalp cooling has not been demonstrated to be effective yet with this agent in part because it does have a long half life if they're interested provide a prescription for a wig and also important to talk to them, of course, about all the um, common side effects and also to reach out early if they're having issues with gastrointestinal side effects. And here is a summary from the ASCENT trial looking at time to onset of the treatment-related adverse events uh, compared to chemotherapy. So more neutropenia was seen, more diarrhea was seen, and of course neutropenia can be seen early but can get more significant as time goes on. Diarrhea, as we discussed, is not always instant, but it can be kind of early or late. Anemia also is one that... um, can be seen early but can get worse with time. Nausea tends to be more early um, and related to the, the vomiting as well. But hopefully, again, with um, good anti-emetic approaches, um, nausea and vomiting can often be well-controlled. And now we'll move on to different antibiotic drug conjugate, the map druxacan Toxicity with this agent are managed similar to other drugs. Where we're thinking about dose adjustments or interruptions when we have to. Um, one special adverse event to point out with this agent is interstitial lung disease. So, um, in the study, there's 12.1% of patients in the directin cohort who had ILD. So, you know, we see ILD with pretty much almost any agent, but this is much higher than we see with other. Drugs. So certainly one to be very aware of the median time to onset was 129 days. So, you know, extremely important to educate patients about this risk and be assessing for um, any desaturations, cough, um, shortness of breath and have a very low threshold to assess with a CT scan of the chest. Cardiotoxicity can also be be seen, as we can see, with um, many anti-HER2 agents. So um, there is recommendations to look at an echocardiogram prior to treatments and at regular intervals. Um, Routine labs are looked at with this agent as well, and it can also cause um, significant nausea. so important to pre-medicate and have um, agents at home for nausea. Here is um, a sort of overview of management of ILD associated with Tresuzumab, cam So if it's suspected, the drug should be held and um, there should be assessment with chest imaging um, to see if there's any changes suggestive of it. Um, it can be confirmed with a high resolution CT scan of the chest. Often, um, if it's at all more significant, we'd be involving a pulmonologist, important to rule out infections as well. Um, Sometimes additional testing is needed if uh, infections on the Differential as well, so some patients may end up with a bronchoscopy, pulmonary function test, um, and so as soon as it's uh, suspected, we're holding the drug. And really, it depends on how severe it is in terms of um, if you if a patient might be able to be retreated with the drug. So if it is grade one, it's held until it resolves to grade zero treating with steroids early. And if it does resolve early, then um, retreatment can be attempted versus grades two to four, um, the agent's permanently discontinued. So in summary, tersetuzumab-gogitikan and trastuzumab deruxtecan have different side effects profiles and some overlapping side effects. So the most common grade three or four adverse events associated with sasituzumab is neutropenia that can be managed with growth factor support and dose reductions. Uh, we withhold treatment for ANC under 500 on day one or ANC less than a thousand on day eight. Grade one, two, nausea, diarrhea, alopecia, and fatigue are also common with sasituzumab. Trastuzumab deruxtecan is associated with ILD, cardiotoxicity, neutropenia. If ILD is suspected, uh, we must hold the agent, assess, and confirm, and manage appropriately with steroids. So an action item discuss potential risks and benefits of SG versus TDXD with eligible patients with metastatic TMBC who have progression after prior therapies. Next section is about PARP inhibitor-related adverse events. Again, a summary here. So common ones that we see are impact on the blood count. So anemia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, So we're keeping an eye on the CBC. There can also be GI renal um, toxicities as well. Fatigue can be seen and alopecia can be seen. And the onset of that is usually later compared to chemotherapy. And here is some information on the management of the non-hematologic adverse events. And essentially that would be by grade with us often being able to kind of treat through early grade, but um, at grades three or more, um, the agent is held. And then uh, grades three or four, lasting 28 days or more, at the lowest dose, the PARP inhibitor would be stopped. And some other managements, how different laboratory abnormalities um, can be seen as well, including in the liver function tests, Uh, cholesterol can also be impacted as well. Less common toxicity would be neurologic, respiratory, and cutaneous. And so to summarize common adverse events with PARP inhibitors, anemia, neutropenia, and thrombocytopenia are the most common, usually developed within three to four months of starting, and generally resolve within two to three weeks. Um, PARP inhibitors are also associated with non-hematologic AEs, including alopecia and GI and renal adverse events. For grade three or four, lasting 28 days or more at the lowest dose, we would discontinue the PARP inhibitor. And so an action item is to counsel patients about the common hematologic AEs and that they generally resolve. So
0: let's move on to dosage and administration.
1: We always have a summary slide of the different agents we discussed um, with the starting dose and the dose reduction and the indications So this can be more for reference. To finish up with thinking about patient and caregiver education, so overall important to manage expectations regarding potential adverse events and side effects to educate about them and to make sure patients are up to date on everything else they need, such as vaccinations um, and to support adherence uh, with education strategies. Some of these agents are easier to take or remember than others. And then also important to educate about clinical trials, if applicable. A bit of a summary. So, prophylactic interventions can often mitigate treatment-related adverse events. So, primary or secondary prophylaxis can minimize effects on treatment toxicity. Pre-medication for nausea, vomiting, and hypersensitivity is recommended for sasetuzumab. Manage more severe hematologic toxicity with supportive measures or dose modifications. Counsel patients in advance about expected toxicities and potential remedies. And educate patients on side effects or toxicity that require immediate consult with your team. An action item, be aware of potential toxicities and use recommended prophylaxis where indicated. So next, we'll talk about communicating with your patient. Tips here about how to implement key communication skills um, by addressing the patient's needs and um, assessing their preferences, having open dialogue, listening, tailoring discussion, overcoming cultural language differences, raising and addressing the issue of healthcare disparities, and importantly, discussing uh, financial toxicity of treatment. So here is a uh, PCE action plan. Overall, kind of an action plan summary. Be aware of the modifiable risk factors and know that maintenance of a healthy lifestyle may reduce the risk of developing TNBC. Ensure appropriate biomarker molecular assessment at diagnosis and at time of recurrence or metastasis to guide optimal treatment decisions. Remember that adjuvant pembrolizumab can be given concurrently with Olaparib for patients with high-risk early TNBC with BRCA mutation with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy. Perform germline testing, particularly BRCA1 and 2, and obtain HER2 and PDL1 IHC in all patients with metastatic TNBC, as that's crucial um, for optimal treatment decision making. Monitor patients regularly on immunotherapy for potential adverse events and educate them to report any concerning signs or symptoms to you. And discuss potential risks and benefits of SG versus TDXD with eligible patients with metastatic TNBC who have progression after prior therapies. Counsel patients about common hematologic adverse events with PARP inhibitors, knowing that they generally resolve within two to three weeks, and to be aware of potential toxicities and use recommended prophylaxis where indicated.
0: So now let's revisit some of our questions. I'm going to push on so I can ask one question of Dr. Spring. Dr. Spring, if TNBC is more prevalent in the African-American population, is there anything that could be done to proactively prevent that disease in this population?
1: No, it's a great question I think screening remains incredibly important and right now it's a little bit of a one-size-fits-all approach Um, but I think to kind of dig deeper into the epidemiology and ages and think more about screening and education communities about screening as well thinking about MRI when we see very dense breast so education about that I think with um, primary care teams uh, would be important and I think there's a lot of work going on to improving screening. And I think also to really better understanding the biology of the disease to see if there might be anything else from a prevention standpoint.
0: Yeah. Dr. Spring, I want to thank you for a great presentation. I'm hopeful for TNBC breast cancer patients knowing the choices that you've outlined for us today. I've learned a lot and I know the audience has too. And I appreciate your time. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education pace in partnership with smart patients and is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.